brothers, my days here are done. The Dornishman's taken my life. But what does it matter? For all men must die. And I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. I have. I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. He's got a good voice. is coming. You're listening to the Watchers of Westeros. I am the king. A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. Also heard the phrase, the Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Hello again, everybody. And welcome to another episode of The Watchers of Westeros. This is your source for Game of Thrones talk, discussion, all that fun stuff. This week we are talking about the seventh episode of season five, Unbowed, Unbent. No, wait, that was that was episode six. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> what a way to start. No, we're talking about episode episode seven, The Gift. I nearly said episode seven, The Force Awakens. That would have been that would have been a very different show. But here we are talking about the gift. It's going to be a great episode. Lots of incredible things happening. The the meeting between two legendary characters. We'll be getting into all that and so much more this evening. First first introductions are in order. The one who keeps screwing up me. That is my name is Dominic, and joining me as he always does is my good friend and co-host Kieran. Hello, Dominic. I will allow you to screw up for the first time in the uh, in the show today as usually it's me so you can you can get the idea of how it is on the opposite end of the spectrum folks yeah. but in fairness you've been very busy as well of course yeah. Dominic with, well, with work yeah. at the moment which yeah. has taken up a lot of your time yeah I've just decided I need to stop making predictions about when the next episode of this show will come out I like it's I, I do another weekly show and there's there's we, we never have to change the recording schedule for that but this this show we never seem to be able to find a time and you know we were we had been hoping to not record on sunday again because this is sunday the episode the next episode airs in about seven hours from now so we'll, we'll get this out as quickly as possible um and, and we had hoped to not do this this way again like we did last week but uh between between my work schedule and some uh surprise surprises along the way <laughs> this week uh uh, unfortunately we're back at, at this time so i'm just gonna stop making predictions the, the episodes will come out when when they come out and and the, the thing about that is i mean really you ask anybody you know who's been podcasting for a while for you know suggestions advice anything hell if you've yet asked me a couple of weeks ago this is probably the advice i'd give you is you know if, if try and always have a set release date so people know when to expect new episodes of your show 
And that has just gone out the window with this show. <laughs> the episodes will come out. They will come out before the next episode of Game of Thrones. So you just have to, uh, even if it is, you know, five hours before. So, but we'll hopefully, hopefully, and I said I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this. Hopefully we'll, we'll find a time to, to get them out earlier so you can listen during the week and be ready for the, uh, for the new episode on Sunday. So you're not going back and listening to, you know, old news. All of our our predictions, will, you know, will either come true or be proven false within, again, within about seven hours from when we're making them. So, but anyways, let's get into it. Let's talk about the gift, and we'll just start how we always do with our initial impressions of the episode. So I'll, I'll throw that over to you, Karen. For what do you think of the gift? Well, as soon as this episode had aired, I actually messaged yourself, Dominic, to get a gauge of your opinion on this episode because if folks remember last time when we talked about season five episode six dominic wasn't the biggest fan of that episode and i had disagreed with him and when it came to this particular episode i actually had a similar attitude to my review of episode six of this season where i thought it was actually a very good episode and i actually think that Whilst there wasn't a lot necessarily of action in this episode, I felt the plot was developing a lot more. A lot of the story arcs were becoming a lot starker in terms of where the course of the story would actually culminate towards to. And I actually found it quite entertaining. So I asked Dominic and I, I, he seemed to give an opinion where he was quite happy I don't know how or to what extent he is happy with this episode when we look at the season as a whole. But for me, I I really enjoyed this episode in particular. I I thought that there was a a diverse range of stories which were considered. We looked at the North particularly concentrating on the story of Samuel Tarly and Gilly. Also looking at of course, Ramsay Snow or Ramsay Bolton, who she called him, um, Sansa Stark, Reek, looking at Stannis. And then we went down south looking at Littlefinger, Elena, the High Sparrow, as well as Cersei. And then, of course, Danny, Jorah, and Tyrion. So there was a lot that was looked at and, and focused on in, these, in, in this particular episode. But I thought all of it was very good. There was a lot of depth to the story. And we are starting to, I guess, move, uh, travel steam ahead towards a, an end goal towards some of these story arcs, particularly the the Tyrion stuff, uh, the Stannis Winterfell story arc, as well as the as well as the South, particularly involving the High Sparrow and the High Militant that are being involved there. So I think that we can start to see where these story arcs are really going to come to a head, and I think it's going to be coming very, very soon. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Dominic, on this particular episode, in light, of course, of your opinions of the season as a whole, which haven't necessarily been of the highest order, and and, and I'm not necessarily disregarding. I actually think that it's fair compared to other seasons it's been quite a slow burner 
Yeah, I, I I do have a theory about why this season has seemed so slow. There's a couple of factors, but that's something I think we'll get into once the season has wrapped up. And, and when we do our, our season five look back wrap up show after, after the season is over, then we'll, we'll get into that stuff then. Uh, but as for this episode itself, um, I definitely think we are finally uh, coming out of the mid-season slump where the ep- this episode was uh, much better than, than previous episodes. And it was, I think it was so for a, a number of reasons, specifically with, with, again, with what was going on in the South, more so than what was going on in the North. Uh, although the, the Stannis stuff, it was just one scene, but it's a very interesting scene that we'll, uh, we'll have to deal with a lot. But overall, I, I did enjoy this. I enjoyed the, you know, we saw Cersei, Cersei at her highest high, and then we immediately go to her lowest low and and uh, and i thought that storyline especially in this episode was uh was a high point and well let's just get into this let's let's start in the north let's start in the north and we start with the uh you know the the the, a tragic death um because it's but not in the sense of normal game of thrones tragedy which is somebody being stabbed through the heart at a wedding (laughs) or something like that it was uh the death of of meister aemon targaryen and of course the the scene itself is sad but what we begin to see is finally or finally yeah for the longest time sam tarley has been basically under the protection of john snow and he's been you know he's been surrounded by friends and now we're sort of seeing him on his own and we're seeing the people turn or the the brothers of the night's watch turning against sam should should we be worried about them turning against John because Sam is sort of the, the weak point or sort of, you know, they consider those two to be a team, to be sort of a tam- tandem tandem or whatever. And now they're going after the weaker part of it. Once, if they do succeed in taking down the weaker pair of this duo, would they then turn on Jon Snow? Because Jon Snow is not exactly the most popular guy right now. Uh, should we be worried? Do you think? Do you think there's reason to worry for for Jon Snow, you know, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch? His best friend is is basically having the the crap beat out of him in this episode, and it's been made clear throughout this season that there are many members of the Night's Watch that don't appreciate what he's doing with the Wildlings. What do you think? I would say, of course, we should be worried about Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. I think his destiny and his fate is certainly left in a in an aura of ambiguity mm-hmm. to the audience. John leaves with Torment Giants Bane mm-hmm. at the beginning of this episode, and I think there's trepidation from the audience's perspective towards John's fate on both the Wildling side and the Night's Watch. Mm-hmm. I think, as you said. Sam, in a way, serves as a conduit to Jon Snow with regards to Sam's presence at the Night's Watch. Jon isn't there in corporeal form, but as you said, Sam is so closely tied with Jon Snow that, in a way, he is representative as an individual of Jon Snow at the Night's Watch. And when he's getting the crap beaten out of him by those Night's Watchmen, then I think, in a way, it's quite symbolic of John's rule being undermined mm-hmm. and I, I would genuinely start to fear for not just John Snow but also what's, what's going to happen to Sam and Gilly mm-hmm. but 
more importantly, Gilly, I would say, because I have a, a very bad feeling about where her story is going to lead. <laughs> we see that Amon Targaryen has actually said in this episode, take little Gilly down south, yeah. get him well, away Sam. from the wall. Yeah. Which I think Aemon Targaryen, to me, is quite representative of a figure who we should actually listen to when it comes to advice. Yeah. He's one of those characters that's always been benign to Sam and John at the wall, and he's been through the experience of having the opportunity to become king, and he's refused it because of his duty. So duty-wise, I think we should listen to Aemon Targaryen, and he's saying to get the baby down south. Mm-hmm. And after we've seen what the Night's Watchmen were prepared to do to Gilly in this episode, I think that her story is going to come to a, an end sooner rather than later. Mm. Um, that's my theory. And to <laughs> me, that is also reflective of worry towards where Jon's story is going to go. Um, and if one has seen a preview for next episode, I'm not going to go into it too much, but it, it's certainly going to be interesting to find out what happens up in the north. I'll throw it over to you, though, Dominic, as you've asked the question. What do you think, then, with the, the Sam storyline and, and and how worried we should really be about what's going to happen to Jon Snow if and when he returns? Yeah, I, I am. I think that this these attacks on Sam are basically the, the warning, or what it should be a warning to the audience, that these members of the Night's Watch aren't going to be too happy with uh with uh with Jon Snow because well we, for one we've already seen that uh the Night's Watch was also very divided on who should be the leader of of the Night's Watch who should be the Lord Commander what should it be Alistair Thorne or should it be Jon Snow and they get you know Jon wins by one vote Meister Aemon's and so the, right away there's already about half the brothers of the Night's, Night's Watch that are against him and then he makes the bold and the moral I, I would say the correct or the moral decision to try and live with the wildlings and you know he ha- does have significant significant experience with the wildlings that perhaps that has softened his view of them in a way that the you know we had that scene last last season where sam was talking to to meister Eamon and you know they he talked about you know, he's reading. Sam is reading all the horrible things about the wildlings, and Meister Eamon says, "Well, think about what the wildlings must think of us." So there's there's that going on as well. So so John has that reason to go and do this, but most of the brothers of the Night's Watch don't realize that, and they are against him. Even his friends who say, "I will follow you no matter what," but I think this is a bad idea. So John is already in in bad straits, and he's probably taken most of his friends or most of the people that support him with him when with off on his, his mission with Tormund to try and bring as many wildlings south as possible. So there's there's that as well going on that probably all the people that are left at Castle Black are mostly against him. And the Night's Watch doesn't really have all that great a record with Lord Commanders. I mean, we've already seen one be betrayed by supposed brothers uh earlier in the series. Uh, the, the, um Lord Commander uh, Mormont, Jorah's father. Uh, was of course murdered back in season two, and so we we have that already going on. I think that you know these the the brothers may gang up on Sam, and once they gang up on Sam, they will eventually turn to Jon Snow because they are considered 
the dynamic duo of the uh, of the uh, of the Night's Watch of Castle Black, and you know, Ghost may be around, may have been able to save the day this time, but he will not always. Uh, you know, Ghost may not always be around to to save Sam, and he may not be enough. Should all of the brothers turn against Sam? So yeah, it's a it's an interesting turn of events, and of course. Alistair Thorne tells Sam in this episode, you know, you're running out of friends, Tarly, uh, when they're looking at the burning corpse of Meister Eamon. Now, just quickly, one more thing about uh, Eamon Targaryen. Um, do you think there was anything significant about the fact that it seems that now uh, Danny is the only Targaryen left? That, uh, you know, the death of Meister Eamon left her as the only one? Because I, I read that a couple of times in, in reviews this week, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, but is there any significance? I don't really know that there is, but I, I wanted to throw that to you and see if you have any theories about that. Well, the only interesting thing, I guess, with Aegon Targaryen scenes, or Aemon, I should say, Targaryen scenes in this episode, yeah, was his continual reference to Egg Aegon, yeah. as, as the child. Yeah, Aegon Targaryen. And I wondered, is there added significance to this? Are we going to find out that there's more to Aegon Targaryen than meets the eye, or, or at least his and his descendants? Are we going to find out more about the successors? And, and, and we've obviously have reference to Rhaegon Targaryen as well. Rhaegar, yeah, quite a few times. Rhaegar Targaryen a, a couple of times in this season, and we've obviously speculated on on the significance of that, but. To an extent, it is because obviously it really showcases from the show's perspective that there's only one Targaryen we know of, at least, that is actively alive. Now, again, we talked about the speculation that Jon Snow may be part Targaryen and, and that remains to be seen. But it hasn't really been highlighted or emphasised in the show. And I've I've seen no reason as to why there would be added significance to it when he has, in a way, renounced his title, renounced his claim to the throne, and he is a man of the Night's Watch. And he stick true to those tenets and principles. So in my perspective, I don't think there's too much that we can really focus on in terms of the fact that he, you know, he has gone as a Targaryen because he's relinquished that title. That's mm. what I believe anyway. But I, I, I wonder, do you have a different perspective about this, Dominic? No, uh, not really. I, I kept seeing that, you know, after the episode aired and sort of thinking, well, maybe there's some significance to that. But I, I don't really know because the only significance I could see to it is, well, it's, we're really trying to show how alone Daenerys really is. You know, Barristan Selmy's dead. Jorah has been, she's basically turned her back on Jorah. Um, really all she's got left, she had to execute that slave kid. All she's got left is his Darzo Lorak. And, uh, there's, there's some interesting theories about him and we can get into that. Um, and Dario Naharis and neither of them seem to be really significant, um, aids to her. And now not that Eamon could really do anything for her because he's, he's so far away, but I think just the fact that there are no more, Targaryens other than her for for all we know um perhaps is meant to signal a little bit more of uh 
of a, of a, of a shift for her where perhaps we're seeing why she would need someone like Tyrion Lannister. But that being said, I, I don't know if it, if, if my, my Eamon's death really affected her story. I think it was more about affecting Sam's story and, and to an extent, John's story because they were closer to him. I mean, she didn't even know he existed proper, probably. I will say, though, it's been interesting to see the Targaryens are being mentioned and referenced a lot more this season. We're getting a lot more about their history. We heard about Rhaegar at the tournament. Um, Danny learned about, about Aemon's a- you know, true nature, that he was truly the Mad King. But then she also learned about the, the good things that, that Rhaegar would do. And uh, you know, he would go out and sing and, and give his money away and, and that kind of stuff. So we are hearing about sort of the, the, the Targaryens because the Targaryens were often presented in the earlier seasons as... You know the villains is the bad guys. They are, they aren't good. You know Robert Baratheon hates Targaryens, and you know Ned Stark and 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 even uh, Tywin. They were they weren't pretty. They weren't into Targaryens either. They they were all against them. And, and but now we were sort of seeing this season. We're seeing the the two sides of it, and I think that's interesting. I wonder if there's something to that. Um, but that's something I'm sure we'll. I'm sure that that could be something that could play into later seasons. But I don't really know. Let's talk about Sam and Gilly in this episode because I think it ties in um, well to a lot of the things we talked about last week with what happened to to Sansa. And, you know, last week we talked about how sometimes and or quite often in fiction, I guess, things will happen to female characters for the sake of advancing the story of a, of a male character. And we kind of got that in this episode with what happened to Gilly, you know, her, the, the attempted, uh, rape of her by those two brothers of the night's watch were, was, was really more about showing Sam's, Sam's failure because we haven't really seen Sam fail very much. Sam's been that guy who, you know, looks like he should fail at everything because, or at least in, in this, this world he does, but he's, you know, he's killed a white Walker. He's killed a Fenton, as he says in, in the episode, he's done all these great things, but uh, but in in the episode we sort of see bad things happen to Gilly for the sake of it advancing his story, which is just not the the greatest storytelling technique. But at the same time, it, it did advance their story. But I'll just quickly throw it to you. What did what did you think of that of that sequence there with the with the two uh, the two Knights Watchmen and and Gilly and Sam and and Ghost? The final finally the return of Ghost this season. Yeah, it was definitely a, a quite shocking scene. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily came out of the blue because we'd obviously had the insinuating comment from Alistair Fawn about Samuel Tarly losing his friends. Yeah. And we, we really got to witness the ramifications of that in this episode, which I guess I thought the timing was more shocking more than the event itself. But what it, as you said, it does show the, the still limitations within Sam's character that certainly is a courageous and brave individual, but whether that actually matches with his skill and ability or as, as a swordsman, it, it certainly showcased in this scene that he has restrictions on that front of being a, a skilled swordsman or, or a agile fighter. And... I, it's a shame because as an audience member, we're rooting for Sam in a way, but it's not coming into fruition. We're not actually seeing Sam succeed necessarily in this episode, and yeah, without the help of 
ghost at least mm-hmm. and it it I, I think it's playing a realistic mm-hmm. idea but I, I, another theory that's that's been spouted is that that maybe Sam's heart wasn't completely completely in it with regards to the fact that he was fighting brothers of the night's watch and he didn't necessarily want to sure Sure. completely uh, throw himself against them. But I, for me, I would dispel that notion because it was Gilly who he was fighting for. And I think he adores Gilly more than anybody else apart from Jon Snow in The Night's Watch. And so for me, I generally think that Sam was fighting for his life. And it didn't end up that way that he was able to succeed. But... It, it, to me, I, I would be worried if I was an audience member about what's going to happen with Sam's story. Not necessarily Sam's character himself, but as I alluded to earlier, more than what's going to happen to Gilly and her child. Mm. We've seen this happen now with a couple of brothers and the Night's Watchmen. Is, is this just a start or is this the end? I'd be mm. interested to get your view on this, Dominic. Oh, it's it's definitely just the start. There's, I, I think that's very much the case and. I I wouldn't be surprised like you to to see things maybe turn out badly or to be a, or for there to be a situation where they maybe have to leave or or, or something like that you know because it, it does look like things are are going bad at the wall again you know they they were it does look like we're in a situation where they're really they they're making a point of showing us the evil at the wall you know last season they didn't really do that they sort of showed more of the the brotherhood aspect and they they portrayed you know some people as being stubborn and not thinking straight but nobody was ever portrayed as evil and this season we're seeing we're kind of coming back to that idea that we haven't really seen since the events at craster's keep you know since since there was that turn since those uh since that group turned on on lord commander mormont so we're i think that's what we're we're seeing i think things are going to get worse uh for for sam and gilly at the wall and this was sort of again to remind us that the the men of the night's watch while they there is honor to it they are or there can be honor to it i guess i should say they are there are a lot of bad people there who want to do bad things and that's what we saw in this episode and uh you know, I, I, Sam. Sam better keep Ghost close by for the rest of this season. I, I, I would, uh, I would suggest that to Sam that you know, keeping Ghost around is his best bet. Um, you know, he, he can, he just Ghost just sort of becomes his his pet. He can, he can take Ghost for walks and and stuff. That way, nobody will mess with will mess with him because they don't want to go up against the direwolf unless they decide to all turn on him. In which case, I don't think even Ghost could could save them. Uh, well, let's move on. Let's let's go uh, to well. Let's let's go to Stannis and and his uh, his march forward, and we see lot not not great things are going on with that march. They are stuck in the snow. Uh, the cell swords are leaving. Horses are dying, and Sir Davos is is really desperately trying to convince Stannis that now is not their time. They need to go back to Castle Black and figure out or and wait until the time is right to attack Winterfell. But Stannis does not want to do that. Um, we're seeing Stannis being very stubborn. Uh, you know, he's stubborn in that he wants to attack, but at the same time, he, he we also f- are starting to see a little bit of strife between Stannis and Melisandre. St- Stannis is kind of losing all of his friends. You know, Sir Davos is, is kind of 
doesn't agree with him. So Davos wants them to turn around and, and run, basically, or turn around, not turn around, turn around and run, but turn around and go back to Castle Black. And Melisandre wants Stannis to sacrifice uh, Shireen. And, you know, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Shireen and we talked about how she could have some bigger role in the in the grand story, you know, being the... You know, being that it seems that the story is really becoming about the younger generations and perhaps she could represent the um, the Baratheons in, in that. I am worried for her character now because uh, Melisandre wants to sacrifice her. And while Stannis won't, I, you know, it seems that maybe Melisandre might go to Shireen's mother who doesn't love Shireen the way that Stannis does. And while Stannis is absolutely against this, I'll just throw this to you, prediction, do you think that Shireen is going to make it out of this season? Knowing what we know now? I... I'm with you. I'm very worried now. You know know what? When we discussed this before, with relation to Sansa, Bran, Arya, maybe even Marcella... You know, those were the younger generation characters we were discussing. It seemed like we, we kind of hit on something there. Mm-hmm. And maybe Shireen would follow suit as being the queen of the House Baratheon. But I'm with you. I'm very concerned about what's going to happen here. And we, we spoke of before about how this victory would be Melisandre's, not necessarily Stannis's. And I think if Shireen is sacrificed, that really fits into our critique of the situation for me i'm thinking of two things that could happen here and all of them are interlinked by the fact that it's going to be a a alliance between melisandre and and shireen's mother yeah here that they're they're going to concoct some way to try and sacrifice shireen now, one way I'm thinking of is that it could be done forcibly against the will of Stannis Baratheon yep. while he stands there and watches. Another way is that it happens during the battle itself. And that while Stannis, Sadavos, and whoever else are fighting, Melisandre and, and Shireen's mother take Shireen away to sacrifice her. And I am very concerned at who is guarding her, how she's going to be kept safe. I... Unless Stannis himself really alerts soldiers or, or, or does something to make sure that she's protected, the fact that we've been alerted to Melisandre's intentions as an audience makes me fearful for her character. Well, yeah. What, what, well, do you, what do you think? Do you yeah. agree with some of those ideas? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that first prediction you, you, you suggested that it will be done forcibly against Stannis's will is what I think is, is is what's going to happen because before this season we were hearing people say oh there's stuff in this season that is worse than the Red Wedding and it's like well what can be worse than that than that whole ordeal well what about a child being sacrificed burned at a stake probably because that seems to be Melisandre's way of doing things while her father is restrained and stopped from saving her that's pretty that's pretty horrible that's pretty horrific that's pretty dark and uh yeah i i think i think stannis i think that melisandre is going to usurp stannis i think that she will go she will not obey his commands to 
save Shireen. She will go behind his back to uh, to Shireen's mother, Salise, and um, or Salise. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. They never say her name on the show. <laughs> um, uh, and, and they will sacrifice um, Shireen. And in that moment, we will finally see Stannis show some level of emotion. And she will then turn the tables on him and present him as weak. And she will lead his army. That's sort of where I see this going. I don't know. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> um, but that seems to be that it seems to be looking that way that that Stannis is going to lose control of his army. That you know he's already he already lost the battle of of Blackwater. Now, if he he could you know he's already said if he, he retreats he becomes the king who ran or the king who runs. So there's already perhaps some of that being whispered about him and so now he you know it seems he won't do what needs to be done to win the battle it, it could be bad news for stannis uh and and so i i yeah that i i worry for that character i i don't know what what we should expect from from her future but it seems but then you know there is one person who might be able to save her other than stannis that's sir davos he saved gendry you know he doesn't like the red woman he already you know he already went behind her back to, to rescue gendry and he he and shireen have some kind of relationship together of you know she, they both care for each other we saw them we've seen them joking together we've seen her teaching him how to read so perhaps he might be the one who can save her and perhaps he will finally show stannis for lack of a better term uh the light that melisandre is not really the one you want to follow so we'll see, but it's, uh, it, it, things are, are, things don't seem to be going that well in, in Stannis's camp right now, but let's go to where Stannis will eventually one day, hopefully please <laughs> invade, which is Winterfell. And we, we see a bit of, uh, a bit of fallout from last episode. We see that Stansa or Stansa. <laughs> that's the, that's the Stannis and Sansa shipper name. Um, it's a it's Sansa is a <laughs> Sansa is, is this is a horrible time to be laughing because Sansa is be bruised. She's in bed crying, and it's it's clear that she has she's being raped every night by Ramsay Bolton. And so we we do get to see some of the emotional trauma. And you know, last week we we talked at great lengths about what happened and and how the show had to handle it moving forward and i still think we need to wait a little bit longer we still need to see how this season ends because we we did see her do a couple of things that seem to suggest that she's going to be able to to move past this somehow or get her revenge somehow on on ramsey bolton you know she did try and get theon or reek to go light the candle in the broken tower and she does she does steal some kind of weapon when she's out for her walk with with ramsey but in, in the reviews i was reading I, I did come across a very interesting interesting little passage this is on this is from salon.com it's written by libby hill and this is kind of ties into what we were talking about last week and how the show needs to sort of take time to to handle the uh the the fallout from events like how unbowed and bent and broken ended. And there was this, uh, there's this little, um, 
passage in the review uh quote the problem that game of thrones encounters more often than not when it attempts to tackle these smaller more human moments of the aftermath of the trauma is that there's just is that it's just not built for there's no way to sufficiently capture the grief of sansa after being raped because there there are 15 other characters that need servicing in each episode the same was true when the show used to do its theon torture time drop-ins during season three there's no way to adequately adequately build the ramifications of theon's fate because to do so would require far more time investment time investment than the show could afford so when people say game of thrones should stop should stop featuring rape as a plot it's not so much because featuring rape uh is just bad because rape is bad <laughs> it's because they should uh, it's because they should stop featuring rape because it's physically impossible for the show to to portray it in the sufficiently grave light it deserves. And I, I thought that was a, a really interesting point. And this kind of ties back to something I was saying last week about part of the reaction, I think, uh, to why it was so negative was because it wasn't something that was done in the books. And I don't mean that from the sense, the standpoint of people saying, er, it's not in the books, therefore I am angry. It ha- the, the story has to be the same. It's because in, in novels you have more time and you're better able to portray the, the grief that they're talking about in this review uh, of the episode. Um, and, and that what we want to see portrayed is because, yeah, it's better, it's easier to portray it in words than it is in pictures. Because, um, you know, pictures can only capture so much of what's going on inside somebody's head. And so when, so when the show and the books tell or or show things more or less the same way, you can kind of use the books to supplement the show and sort of say, okay, this is what that character was thinking at that time. And I've done that with adaptations of other stuff, stuff, you know, sometimes when the Harry Potter movies didn't cover things the same way, the the, the way I would have liked them to have done it in the, the, based on the books, you can kind of combine the books and the movie in your mind and, and reach some kind of good cohesion between the two to to create one nice fitting story. And that's sort of what I was getting at. And so I, I thought that was interesting. I thought we should, should bring that up because, you know, we did talk about it a lot last week and it still is kind of a, a touchy subject um, amongst fans right now uh, because of what happened at the end of last week's episode or two weeks ago, I guess. Um, so I, I wanted to bring that up because I, I, I thought it was interesting, but uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Sansa's conversation with Ramsey, where she's constantly reminding him that he is a bastard and he is not, that he may not be able to have a claim on the throne. Is this, do you think this is Sansa, fighting back you know trying to create doubt in ramsey's mind or what do you think the her goal is in the, in that scene because it seems to be very calculated what she's saying to him you know you know what i mean it seems like it's something she's trying to drive home a point with him is she trying to distract him from her and make him go after his father or is she just trying to torment him in some way or is she trying to make him doubt himself what, what do you think her goal was in in that sequence you mean in a sequence between her and Ramsay when she discusses Tomlin and yeah. and the stepmother? Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. I think, in part, she's obviously frustrated with Ramsay and, and very angry about what's happened with regards to the. You know, I don't want to put this in in a um, in a condescending way at all, but the fact that she's been raped. I mean, of mm-hmm. course, that's going to spark a lot of angst towards that particular character. But what I do think is that we do see character growth with Sansa Stark. Sansa Stark of season two and season one 
would have been subservient, Mm -hmm. would have been extremely submissive and in a way bowed to whatever Ramsey had said. But the Sandra season five, she's a lot more tough, a lot more tough skinned. And although physically, perhaps the fact that she's been bruised and, and she's been raped by Ramsey in that respect, she's not, but I would say psychologically, she's developed as a character. She's able mm-hmm. to stand up for herself now, and and she gives these jibes to Ramsey because she knows that that's what really pushes his buttons. We see her give the look in a dinner scene of uh, episode five of season five when it involved the Boltons and herself, uh, when Bruce Bolton mentions that his wife is going to have a baby. And, and she notices that Ramsey suddenly, you know, the tables turn in that scene. Ramsey was the one who was leading and dominant as a figurehead. Now he's the one who is sitting back and frustrated about the fact that he may have a rival mm-hmm. as an heir to becoming a warden of the North. And so Sansa recognises that in the same way that I think a character like Lord Baelish would. Mm. And she pushes his buttons. And I think that's what's quite interesting, that she's learning from Lord Baelish in that way. Yeah. Of course, the results don't necessarily end up the way she would have expected. No. Uh, obviously, Ramsay showcases the flayed old northern woman mm-hmm. who was supposed to be allied towards Sansa. She's lost a, an ally in that respect, which is in a way also symbolic of the way that she's quite isolated in Winterfell, even though it's her home. But I think that the way her character has really stood up to Ramsay in a way is a signifier of how her character has grown still this season and that we can see, although she has been raped and it is, of course, a very traumatic and tormenting situation, she's still able to stand up for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I wonder what your perception is of that scene. Now. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're reading a bit too much into it and maybe that it was just a jibe because she was angst towards Ramsey, but I'd like to think that it is still symbolic of her character growth. Yeah, I, I don't think it was it was came out of angst or anything like that. I, I do th- or or well I am sorry, I wouldn't say angst. I think it came out of anger. Um I think she's she's angry and I think she wants revenge and I think she's sort of uh beginning to understand what what Littlefinger told her earlier in the season that, you know, there's no justice in this world unless we make it. Um, terrible things happen to your family. Avenge them. And we see her take some kind of weapon in that scene. And so perhaps she is finally going to start avenging some of the things, the horrible things that have happened to her uh, and her family. So th- there's that. And and I do think that she, again, she also knows she's also learning how to play the game. And so she's reminding him of these facts I think it's to kind of throw him off, put him on on edge to maybe not to have him where he's he's not thinking as clearly as he once was. Um, not that, you know, Ramsey, Ramsey Bolton really thinks all that clearly. He's a creep and, and, and rapist and murderer and all kinds of horrible things. Um, but I think she's kind of trying to keep that thought in his mind that he may one day lose his power. And so he's maybe watching his back for something to come from his father, which then opens her up to attack him, you know, when he's not expecting it because he's spent all of his time panicking and freaking out about what Roose Bolton might one day 
due to him because he is, you know, even though he's been naturalized, he's still a bastard and uh, a natural son or a, a, a true son of Roose Bolton would be the true heir to, to Winterfell, I guess, from a from a certain point of view. Uh, and and so I think she that's what she's trying to do in that scene. She's trying to get him catch him off balance. And when when he stumbles, she will be there to take him out, whether that's on her own or with help from Brienne or perhaps even help from Theon. Although it doesn't look that way, because that is truly one of the most demoralizing or, or depressing moments in uh, in this episode when she gives the candle to Theon. And begs him to go and, and take it to the broken tower. And he leaves and he goes and he just goes and tells Ramsay. And it's like, oh, Theon, no, no. There looked, looked for a moment like there might be hope for that character. And there still may be. But in that moment, he he crushed our souls again. And, and I don't know. I know you have never been Theon's biggest fan. I, 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 do you have anything you want to say about that sequence? Well, not too much other than the fact that it was it was annoying as an audience member because <laughs> did you expect it? Is well, that... actually, not really because I think it played it off the way the scenes were portrayed in quite a optimistic turn. I guess I mean we'd the music was swelling. Theon visually was looking at the tower. He climbed up the stairs and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my word, he's actually going to do it. Finally! <laughs> but but it didn't happen. When, when he walks into Ramsay's office, or whatever you want to call it, and while <laughs> Ramsay's eating his dinner, it then struck me that it, I shouldn't really be that surprised that this has happened. Yeah. It's going to take more than just a couple of words from Sansa to sway Theon's character. I think until Fionn admits what's happened to him, he will still be unable to actually side with Sansa. Sansa tries in this episode to ask, what did he do to you? And Fionn's not prepared to answer. I think until he's able to not comprehend, but openly express what's happened to him to someone, he won't be able to help Sansa. That, that's my perspective. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good point. He is kind of caught up in, in you know what happened to him, and he he does he's afraid of what happened to him, and he doesn't want to admit it. And he is it's a, it's a, a shell, denial, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, he does say to her, "It can always be worse." And for, again, from a certain point of view, what happened to him is just as bad, if not worse, than what's happening to her. Um, so he, he does have a point there, and at the same time, he you know he does. You, you, he's a character that we are constantly, you know, for all of the horrible things he has done in this season, we have been to an ex, to a certain extent, I think, rooting for him, which is odd to, when again when you think of all the horrible things he's done. But having seen everything he endured, and and now we know that he is somebody who at one point would have helped her out, and and we hope that he will one day regain himself to that point. But it he never reaches that he never actually does anything about it and and so it's it's been a he's kind of a a character that you have a lot of hope for but he's also kind of infuriating because for as much hope as there is he never ever follows through he always he always breaks your heart stupid theon (laughs) uh no poor theon poor theon all right let's let's move on let's go let's go south let's go to dorne and uh and Jamie 
finally gets a, a face-to-face with Marcella, and we see her... We, we finally are seeing somebody stand up to the Lannisters in, a, in an interesting way that they don't want to play along in, in their game. It, you know, Tyrion tried to, but he was never really able to because Tywin was always there and, and preventing it, and Ned Stark tried to to a certain extent. He got his head chopped off. We finally see someone stand up to the Lannisters and is able to kind of get out of the situation because, you know, Jamie is saying, you, you need to come home, you need to come home, and she's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You're finally seeing somebody say no to Cersei Lannister and, and Jamie Lannister and, and kind of creating some internal friction in the, within that family. And there, there's we've seen that a bit this season to a certain extent with Uncle Kevin and and even Lancel Lannister at the end of this episode. Um but it, it was fine it was interesting to see, you know, her stand up to him in that way because, you know, she makes the point that she went to Dorne on good faith of uh, you know, because that's what her mother told her to do. And I think she recognizes that she is a pawn in this bigger game. And she managed to find happiness in Dorne, really probably against all odds. Um, you wouldn't think that would happen, you know, knowing the history between the Martells and the Lannisters. But she was able to find happiness. Her and Tristane seemed to be happy together. And now she's being told, okay, you're, this part of the game is over. You need to come back and be a different piece in the game. And she says no. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was a, an interesting twist on, on what we've seen the Lannisters do for so long. Uh, what, what did you think of, of Marcella's sort of telling off Jamie in that scene of, you know, you don't know me. I'm not going to come back with you. Well, partly about time. Yeah. <laughs> that Jamie's put in his place. But I'd, I'd rather look at it from Jamie's perspective in a way as well. I, I actually feel a lot of sympathy towards Jamie's oh, character sure. because yeah. in a way he's been used by Cersei because although obviously he wants Marcella to come back as well, he's kind of been sent as a, as a correspondent or an agent of Cersei's bidding to bring Marcella back. And, it, and it's all really collapsed into turmoil and chaos. It's not as... Uh, yeah, you know, no, no, nothing has happened according to plan, and I think Jamie is is wanting to tell Marcella that he is her father mm-hmm. in that scene. Yeah, I really think he is. Oh yeah, um, but, he but he can't, can't. Yeah. and he can't, and uh, for many many reasons. One of which would be to state that she would no longer really be legitimized as a Baratheon and a Lannister. Uh, because she was born of incest. And they would call in, so, call Tommen into question as well. Exactly. So there's a lot of reasons why, but you, you do feel a little bit sorry for Jamie Lannister in that scene. And, um, and Marcella's unaware of that fact to her. It's just, his, it's just her uncle. Mm-hmm. And she's a bit frustrated about why he's even there in the first place. So it's, it is about time that, in a way, he does get put in his place. But I, I do feel that scene offers more sympathy towards Jamie's character than it does to us saying, "Oh yeah, you know, go on, Marcella." Personally, what, what do you think about? That? Yeah, no, I, I think there is a, a real tragedy to Jamie Lannister's story. There always has been. Um, you know, he's been stuck with the name Kingslayer for for so long. When really, you know, he did a good thing by killing Aemon Targaryen. 
uh, and, and ending his reign, his reign of terror, uh, ending Robert's rebellion, ending all the death and all that. But, he, and he, but he's sort of got this bad reputation as, as that. And he has been through so much. He was always, you know, he, he took on this role as Kingsguard, which upset Tywin. So he was never looked at very fondly by his father. Um, you know, the, his, his love, the love of his life is his sister. So they have to keep that a secret. And the, the, the his children are all, you know, thought of to be his niece and, and nephew and, and nephews and, and that kind of stuff. And so he can't really tell them the truth. He can't uh, make them understand why he's actually doing this. He's, you know, to, to Marcella, he's just a, an emissary, basically. He, he was just sent there. You know, yeah, he probably cares about her, but she doesn't understand that, you know, how bad things must be that her father would come to, to rescue. She, she just thinks, Oh, here's my uncle. He's an emissary for, he's acting on behalf of my mother and, and the kingdom, blah, 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 blah. And she, so as a result, she sees that as, okay, well, I still don't have to listen to you. Whereas if she, her father came and, and said, okay, look, this is what happened. Or, or even her mother, if her mother came, you know, either of her parents came, she would be a little bit more inclined to maybe understand what exactly was going on now that being said we know that we know as as audience members that she's in a pretty good place she's with somebody who cares about her there's the uh the prince of dorne who's overlooking her and she is taking care of her and his guards are are there to protect her and, and tristane from from the sand snakes and other threats out there so she is in a, a pretty safe place so you know really jamie and cersei don't have all that much to worry about but you know, at the same time, they are parents, and that's what parents do. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's the truth. Uh, so, yeah, I, I there's I think there's sympathy for both characters in that scene. It's 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 an interesting scene between you know father and daughter when daughter doesn't know she's talking to father, and they can't quite reach the uh, you know they can't neither of them is really or Jamie can't really get what he wants in that scene, and his whole mission to Dorne I think was doomed to fail from the beginning. But sticking in Dorne, we, we get one of the weirdest scenes of the entire season. <laughs> you know, we talked last week about Braun, uh, you know, being, you know, wounded by the, one of the weapons of the Sand Snakes. And we talked about the poison. And lo and behold, everybody who caught on to that was right. Braun was poisoned. And in this episode, he's, he's about to, to pass out and die. But then, one of the sand snakes gets naked, makes him admit that she's say that she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, and then gives him the antidote, and he's all right. Was there a point to that scene? <laughs> I, I really, I, I don't, I don't know. Do, 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 can you explain to me what, the purpose of that scene, or are you as baffled by it as I am? Well, a couple of points that I think are worth raising with regards to that scene. I think first of all. The idea or the concept of Bron being poisoned could well serve as a reminder to the audience that the weapons that the Sand Snakes and Dawn, Dornish use possess greater damage, I guess, than your conventional weapons used in Westeros because they have poison on them. Or at least some of the weapons do. Yeah, but do we really so, need uh, that? In, in part, I know, we, you know we've seen that already with Oberyn, but I think perhaps... That could be one reason. That's just one interpretation. Yeah, I'm agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. That's just one way that one could be- perceive that scene to have panned out. 
Number two, you could argue that the antidote, supposed antidote that was given to Bron, isn't actually an antidote, and actually it could maybe prolong his fate, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen with that. We saw that, okay, it managed to stop. At least we think it stopped the poison from surfacing, but who knows? And the third one could be that perhaps the sand snakes see that it's quite necessitated that they collaborate with Bronn mm-hmm. um, in a sense that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You look at it from that perspective. Yeah, but so the, I, but I, the... I can see why the sand snakes want to do it. Why on earth it has to be why she, when she says, oh, I'm the most beautiful woman, whatever. But I, maybe that's just linked onto her demeanor. We don't know these sand snakes well enough, if I'm being honest, yeah. to actually make a comprehensive judgment on what their motives are. If I'm being honest, yeah, I, would you not agree? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They they they're kind of a mystery this season. We know that they want to avenge Oberyn, and not much else about them, really. I mean, we we don't. <laughs> and so, I, I, although I don't really ever see them teaming up with Bronn, because Bronn and Jamie are there to protect Marcella, whereas, um, whereas uh, the Sand Snakes are there to kill her. And by that same token, I mean, yeah, they share. They they share. I guess they want to escape. They want to escape, but would you really want to escape with the person who's going to defend or going to eventually try and stop you from succeeding in their goal? I would more expect if you want to go for the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, Jamie and and Bronn and and uh, the Prince of and the Prince of Dorne's guards teaming up. That I would would make more sense to me, but the goals of the Sand Snakes and Braun are completely the opposite. I, I that whole sequence, I I don't know. I, I did we need to, did we need a reminder that the the weapons were poison that the uh, Dornish weapons are poisonous? I don't think we really did. I, I I think it it just it was a bizarre scene, and and you know last week we. We talked about, you know, we need patience. We need to understand the, the the grander scope of things. And I guess that's what we need for this scene. But all in all, it was one of those scenes was like, what was the point of all that? Like, if Bronn was going to die, if that was the death of Bronn, and now Jamie Lannister is alone in Dorne, then I'm, uh, then I, uh, then I, then I get it. Then it seems to create some kind of, some more danger. But if he's just going to die next week because the, because the antidote is actually a poison... Then what was the point? Why couldn't he just die this week? Why keep him around? It, it you know, we, it, we talked just a sec. I mentioned just a second ago. You know, there's so many characters. You know, from that the quote from the review. There's so many characters calling for screen time. Why have a guy survive one week just to kill him the next week? Just kill him in one of those scenes and give that scene to another character. Give us some more time with. With Stannis or with with Danny or with with John or Sam or Jamie and Marcella or anything, um, don't 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 just jerk us around for the sake of doing that. I, I that that whole scene is is so puzzling. I I, I don't understand it. Uh, and and I'm that was by far the weakest moment in this whole episode. And, and hopefully hopefully there was a point to it, and eventually will it will be revealed. Hopefully before the end of the season, but. We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. But uh, let's let's move. Let's let's go to Jorah and, and Tyrion and and Danny. So 
Jorah and Tyrion, uh, I, I, that, that, the whole slave auction scene was very funny. I, I that was one of those great moments, uh, with, with Tyrion <laughs> beating the crap out of his guard to make a point that he's a great warrior. And the funny thing is, we know that Tyrion has had some great success in battle. You know, he, he basically, you know, in the Battle of, the, of Blackwater Bay, he was one of the key reasons, you know, him and Tywin were among the key reasons for victory in that battle. And, and so I thought that was, a, I thought it was funny that, you know, of course, nobody, nobody believes him, but, you know, he's actually telling the truth. You know, so for all the lies that are being told about, about Jorah to make him sound like this great warrior, Tyrion is there telling the truth that he's a, he's a, he's a warrior too. And nobody believes him. And so I thought that was a, an interesting little scene. Uh, but we see Jorah go through, um, you know, go through hell, basically. He goes through the fighting pits. But he makes a point of not killing anybody and presents himself to, to Danny. And Danny just turns him away. Um, did Was there ever any chance, do you think, that she would be happy to see him because of everything that has gone on this season? Or is she still so burned by what he had done and the way they, they ended things last season. Did, did he ever really have a chance if, you know, if Tyrion hadn't, hadn't been able to walk out there, was there ever a chance for him? I would fear that there wouldn't be a chance. I think that we've looked at Tyrion and Jorah's story from their perspective, mm-hmm. but we have to look at from that. Da- have to look at the story from Danny's as well. Yeah. She hasn't seen Jorah since the events of season four where he was extradited because of betraying her. Simple as that. And I don't think she's completely forgiven that. Whether she would necessarily execute him is up for debate, but we're going to find out soon enough what's going to happen with those two characters, well, Tyrion and Jorah, um, under under the rule of Daenerys. But I do think that with regards to that story... Um, Tyrion and Jorah that like you said if, if Tyrion hadn't come out there Jorah would have been in trouble what, what did he make of that scene yeah well I, I think you know the whole the whole point of that scene was the the meeting between Tyrion and Danny you know two beloved characters who have you know really have some similarities I, I would say uh, and look like they could coexist very well together finally meeting you know uh, Tyrion is the first um uh Tyrion is the first major character from the King's Landing stories and stuff that has finally come to come face to face with Danny. And so I, I think the whole point of that scene was was that last line and uh you know, it'll be interesting to see how they 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 play things out uh from here, play it play it out from here on here on in. Now, let's uh let's quickly uh stop off in King's Landing before things end and we have that great sequence between uh, Lady Olena and the High Sparrow. And the High Sparrow, he's one of those characters that you can't, that I can't quite figure out. Because he seems like, on the one hand, when we met him at the beginning of the season, he seemed like a good person. He, he, was, he was out there helping the needy. And then Cersei gave him some level of power, and now he's out there forcing him, his, his faith and his... his uh, his beliefs on everybody else is—is is this an instance of absolute power corrupts absolutely? Absolutely, <laughs> and, and, and no intention with a pun of absolute power there, but I—I I think so. The—the—the the, the 
pertinent quote that I think needs to be emphasized is what the High Sparrow said with regards to um, the needs of the few over the needs of the many or, oh, yeah. or something akin to that. The idea that you know, the few are the ones who possess the power, mm-hmm. but if the many were to no longer believe in that creed and tenet, then the few would be overthrown. I mean, it, it's an idea, really, the concept of revolution. Yeah. And that if the masses aren't in support of the current regime, then you've and got we trouble. Know they're not. Which they're not. Yeah. Uh, particularly the High Sparrow and the militia. Yeah. Which uh, the idea is we don't know how far they're subsuming to other areas of society in King's Landing, but there's certainly a high presence there. No pun intended with a high either. <laughs> but I, I, that, that was an interesting scene. What, what, Briefly, what did you what did you take from that in terms of the dynamics between the two characters? Who do you think came off best there? Was yeah. it the High Sparrow or Elena? You know, it's it's very interesting because the, the High Sparrow, like I said, I can't quite figure him out because he seems to say all the right things and, and do a lot of you know, it's true. We should judge you know the, the you know, if 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 the high if the, the kings and queens do bad things, they should say, face the same judgment as the poor people. You know, they, it's, it's a simple concept. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because he does have a lot of the times the right idea, but he also, you know, also wants to force his own, his own beliefs on, on, on people if they don't necessarily follow them as well, which is not, not cool. Um, but we also see that he does have some right ideas, you know, feeding people, helping the needy. And and so – but at the same time, we know that he's working for Cersei, which makes him seem like the bad guy. But then at the end of the episode, he turns it around on Cersei. So he's just a character I can't figure out. Like I don't know what to think of him because when we first met him, I'm like, OK, I like this guy. And then he – then Cersei gave him the faith militant back and then it's like, well, maybe I don't like him very much. But then in this, that scene, he's saying all the right things. I think he came off better in that that debate between Olena and uh, and him than she did because she came across as somebody who was trying to bully somebody around and you know he really doesn't have an ulterior motive his his motive is to spread his faith and he doesn't he's not looking to become rich he's not looking to become powerful and we see that again in the ep- end of the episode when he's talking about Baylor and and the and the chapel and and all that with Cersei. And he, he he's that's all he wants in life, and she and and Olena and Cersei and and all that they are looking for something else, and so he comes off better, I think, than she does because she looks like somebody who's being petty. You know, she's going to cause millions of people to starve to get her grandchildren back. Now, again, we understand family is is very important, and and people will do anything for their families, but. We still, you know, that's still not a very nice sentiment that I will kill everybody if you don't release my children from, or my grandchildren from jail. So I think he came across better in that scene, but he's still a character that he's not quite a good guy, but he's not quite a bad guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I know what you mean. And as you said, he's really an enigma. Uh, I think that's really some. He's an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a mystery. Well, it's summated well, I think, in this episode with his conversation with Elena and then what happens with Cersei. So it's yeah, his 
I, I, I really like the way he's portrayed, though. I think as a character, he's very, very intriguing. But as you said, it's really hard to pinpoint what his motives are. Mm-hmm. Um, should we quickly discuss very briefly the yeah. Littlefinger Olena scene before we move on to the final scene? Well, I just want to know what Littlefinger has for Olena. Because they, are, they have been co-conspirators for a long time. They killed Joffrey. And now he's suggesting that he has somebody for her. But I want to know who that is. Like, who do you think that is? Because he, it's does he, he doesn't he say it's a a young man? Who is? I that? think it's Olivar. Olivar. I think that's how he pronounced his name. The man who was seated at a trial with Solaris last week. Oh, or two weeks ago. You think they're going to kill him? That was the one who was running the establishment. Yeah. At the time, what he has in store for Elena, on the other hand, I I think is an ulterior motive. If you if you look at his facial expression to Olena when she's talking about you know if I have to you know she she basically happens to meet an end based on the um, the actions of Littlefinger then she'll he'll then sorry they'll never even find what's left of him mm-hmm. uh, so she's threatening him and he looks extremely um, incensed by those remarks I think. The idea of him giving the gift to Cersei that he's about to give to Elena will have a similar ramification. What's happened to Cersei in this episode could also happen to Elena. Mm, I, th- I think that, I think there's some sort of motive going on here. Hey, I think he wants to get rid of the Tyrells. Interesting. Or at least Elena, in the sense that, with regards to her, she is a threat to him because... Yes of the fact that they were co-conspirators with Joffrey, and she's one of the few witnesses that could provide evidence towards that fact. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, that, do you think that their plan is to, to kill Oliver? Uh, Olive, I call him Ollivander. No, that's the wand maker in Harry Potter. Um, do you <laughs> think that that's their plan is to kill him so that he can't speak at the trial? Because his uh, Littlefinger's gift to Cersei was the information that Sansa was alive, correct? No. No. What was it? The gift was him. Oh, him. In my view. Okay. okay. When he says the gift to Cersei was the same I'm giving to you, a handsome young man. Oh. I think he he was given to Cersei to spy on Loras and would eventually be used as a tool against him at some point. Ah, okay. Okay. That's There you go. So it's him. So, okay. So, yeah. It seems, so that, seems that, to me that's that they're going the to. gift between Cersei yeah. and Elena. That's right. him, in my book, anyway. Well, that, well, that kid's dead. That guy's dead. <laughs> you know, he's the main witness at this trial, for at least for Loris's, um, his gayness, I guess we'll say. Um, and so if he's the main witness and he's dead, he can't speak, then, well, there's not so much a, uh, there's not much of a witness anymore. But very quickly before we wrap things up, uh, what, what was your take on the, the final scene? We finally see Cersei Lannister get her comeuppance. She is in jail. Everything that she has done has backfired on her. Cousin Lancel has revealed the truth about her to the High Sparrow, and now she is in jail. What did you think of, of that scene and her, uh, and her interaction with Marjorie beforehand? Well, I thought the interaction with Marjorie was interesting. More to serve as a, a window to the audience of what the conditions for Cersei Lannister will be like. Mm. That's how her story will follow because she's now been incarcerated in a cell. Um, but you only recognise that in hindsight. At first you think it's, as you said, Cersei getting her compuppances against uh, Marjorie, but in reality it's what's going to happen to her. Yeah. So I thought that, that dynamic was well, quite I, interesting. Yeah. 
it, it was, you know, it's the highest high that Cersei will ever achieve. She had, she, in that moment, it looks like she's won. Marjorie is in a cell. Marjorie is, is about to go on trial for perjury. Uh, Loras Tyrell is, is also, uh, on trial for perjury. It looks like she has won. It looks like she has got Tomlin back. And then everything comes crashing down for her. And we know that she's going to be in that same situation in tonight's episode. Exactly. And I really think that the idea of um, the mother's mercy, mm. which was promulgated by the High Sparrow, will become interesting. I think that will play a part, whether it's Cersei or Marjorie or Solaris who uses that. I, I, I reckon Cersei's going to try and use that. Yeah. to her advantage and I think it's going to bite her in the back because he says that it's based upon the sin that is being uh, committed in Cersei's respect incest is one but there's obviously a lot of other crimes that can be indicted against her so for me I that that could be the big what we're talking about uh, as you said I think it was uh, Sophie Turner who mentioned there's a scene greater than the Red Wedding if the Lannisters and Tyrells all go in one, that would be huge. That would be huge, yeah. And that and, would, and that would rate, leave a what, huge... What do you think about the possibility of that taking place? I All of them going at once, that would leave such a huge power vacuum. And maybe and maybe that will finally be the impetus, the, the, you know, the impetus for, for Danny to begin her trek to Westeros. That would be huge. That would shake things up. You know, we thought the death of Tywin shook things up. That could shake things up even more. And I, I hadn't even thought of that. I thought that one of those houses would find a way to get out of this. But who is next in line if all of them are dead? Because, but also, if incest is promulgated yeah, as being true, then Tomlin's then Tomlin, legitimate. Yeah, then Tomlin is cast in doubt. Marcella is in doubt. So there, that's the end of the Lannister-Baratheon line. And really, in that, in that sense, Stannis is wasting his time. He should just make a beeline for, for King's Landing, and he would probably be the next in line for the throne that would make the most sense i mean could stannis wind up king without ever even needing to attack winterfell could that be like some kind of another horrible tragic turn of events really for sansa stark that you know that the army that is supposed to liberate winterfell and, and in a sense liberate her turns around and and heads somewhere else because of what happens in king's landing that would be huge that I would think be... the tragedy could be more that Stannis meets his comeuppance at Winterfell, mm. and if he just stayed in King's Land, just stayed at uh, Castle Black, Castle Black, then he would be named ruler of the because of the yeah. Westeros. Because who's left? Really, who's left? If Stannis is gone, then Shireen is probably is, is pro- may, may wind up gone as well. We've talked about that. Who's left? Renly's dead. All the Starks are, are you know, all the Starks are dead. Like Balon Greyjoy, like. <laughs> No, he's the only "quote unquote" king who'd really be left. You know, like he, he, Walder Frey. Walder Frey, yeah. I mean, really, it, it would leave such a power vacuum, and you, maybe the High Sparrow winds up as king. Like that would be what a twist that would be. That would be huge, and maybe another reason for again for Danny to make the return to or begin her return to Westeros. But that that is something that we will probably get more hints about in tonight's episode hard home which airs very shortly on hbo in north america and tomorrow as we record this on sky in the uk 
All right. We are going to forego quotes this week. We're uh, running out of time. We're on a bit of a time crunch. So we will, you know, if there were some great quotes, we'll, we'll save them. For the, and there were. And we'll, we'll highlight them next week. We'll do a, an extra long quote section and, uh, and do it from, from both The Gift and Hard Home. But before, before I let you go, because Kieran, I know you got to run. I will throw things to you for your final thoughts and score out of 10 on The Gift. Okay, final thoughts. I thought it was a great episode, The Gift. Probably the best of the season so far. Storylines really begin to develop, as I stated at the beginning. I'm looking forward to seeing the ramifications of the Stannis, Melisandre, and Shireen storyline. Will she be sacrificed, Shireen? Who knows, but it's certainly foreshadowing the possibility of that arising. What's going to happen in the South? Will Littlefinger be able to take advantage of perhaps a power vacuum emerging if the Tyrells and the Lannisters were to all go? It's a distinct possibility. And of course, Danny. Now she's seen Jorah once again, and she's met Tyrion for the first time. How will those, the dynamics between those characters, work? I think we'll find out in the next episode, personally. Yeah. Oh, and of course, don't forget John and the Wall and the Wildlings. So it's going to happen there. I have a feeling about that next week or tonight. Yeah. So what was, what was the score out of ten? Score out of ten. I'm going to give this one an, an eight out of ten. A solid episode in my book. All right, and uh, and and uh, for me. I will say uh, I'll give this a seven out of ten. Like I said, we're, I think we're out, out of the midseason slump. I really did enjoy this one a lot more than uh, some of the previous episodes, so I, I am happy about that. It looks like we're heading towards a very interesting end game, and uh, like I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. Hard Home airs nine p.m. Eastern Time Sunday today on HBO as we record this, and uh, we'll be back next week. Like I said at the beginning, we don't exactly know when. We hope it will be at some point during the middle of the week. But if, it, if, it, if this week was any indication, we, we may be gathering again with uh, six hours before the episode airs to, uh, to discuss, discuss the episode that's going to be on tonight. So uh, definitely check that out. Kieran, uh, do you want to let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM this week? Absolutely. We're, we're coming to the end of the term now of Expression FM, but we had our big show this past weekend of a festival called Hijacked, which is uh, revolved around a number of I guess B-list music, um, I guess bands and stuff. So cool. it was it was pretty cool. Uh, managed to listen to some of that. Really good coverage. Um, so feel free to listen to that when it comes out on Mixcloud at some point. And I've got my show tomorrow, or yeah, tomorrow by the time we release this. Um, so it's Monday six till seven p.m. GMT. So that's around about one to two p.m. Um, Eastern time. And that's called Douglas Dance Anthems. Feel free to listen to that. And um, you can listen to that on www.expression.fm. We've also got what other ways to contact, which is via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ExpressionFM. And our Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash ExpressionFM. And Dominic, don't forget to disclose your own podcast, of course. Yes, uh, of course. I want to tell you about my other podcast, the Star Wars Underworld Podcast. That's where you can find all the latest and greatest Star Wars talk. Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern is when we record live on Mixler. Just search for channel 1138 there. And then you can find it the following day, the Friday, on iTunes. So definitely search for that. We've got lots to talk about. Last week, we talked a lot about The Force Awakens. There was a big character reveal. We also got into some stuff about the music. So you definitely want to check out that episode. It was a real fun one to record. And we will have more of those each and every week. 
Uh, also, of course, if you want more of Kieran and I, you can listen to our other podcast, The Clone Wars Strikes Back. We're on a bit of a pause with that right now, just because uh, we've got so much going on between this show and my new job and, and Kieran wrapping up his term. We'll, we will uh, hopefully be able to uh, to get back on, on, on track with that soon. But as we've mentioned uh, in the past, past couple of weeks, definitely check out the most recent episode of that. Uh, we interviewed James Arnold Taylor, who's the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi and so many other characters on that show. And we had a great time with him. And uh, we also talked about some great episodes of, the, of, of Star Wars The Clone Wars. So you definitely want to check out that. Just search for The Clone Wars Strikes Back, Facebook, Twitter. I, uh, I, well, if you just search for the Star Wars Underworld on iTunes, you get both of those shows over there. Speaking of iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook and whatnot, be sure to follow this show on all those places. Just search for Watchers of Westeros on Facebook and iTunes. That way you will never miss an episode. And when you're on iTunes, be sure to leave a review, subscribe, do all that. It really helps us out. So definitely please do that. And, and if you do leave a review, we prefer the good ones. <laughs> Uh, on Twitter, of course, you can follow the show at Watcher Westeros. You can follow me personally at DominicJ25. And you can follow Kieran at CDuggan6. That will wrap things up for this week. Thank you, everybody. Uh, everybody, enjoy tonight's episode. We'll be back next week to talk about it. So, for the Watchers of Westeros, I'm Dominic. I'm Kieran. And this is, and this, is, and until next time, remember, this is our time, and I will risk everything. <laughs>